Well, I dressed as if it would be 95 degrees and it's not, so I'm feeling a little cold, but we're good. It'll get there. We've spent the last eight weeks in the Psalms dwelling on our relationship with God and what that looks like on a minute-by-minute, hourly, daily basis. And the good thing about the Psalms is that we see people in there that are like us. People who struggle, people who doubt, people who have real issues like we do. And yet they praise God, and yet they trust God, and yet they learn to press into Him despite their, their circumstances. Today, we are dwelling on the concept of adoration. Now, the word adoration implies sort of a specific sort of love. If the word love can sort of be hijacked by today's culture, the word adoration can get us a little bit closer to what we mean when we speak about the love God has for us and even the love we can have in response. To adore someone means to have deep love and respect for them. It's tender. It's warm. I'm fond of you. I love you and I like you. That sort of thing. Now, to love God is, is not just a passive expectation in Scripture. According to Jesus, it is the first and greatest commandment. Now, some may get tripped up by God requiring us to love him. He commands that we love him and like him. He commands that we tell him how amazing he is. And this just isn't just an obligatory assent to God being worthy of praise. Deuteronomy tells us, and Jesus repeats to us, that we are to love God with all of ourselves. Specifically, all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. We are to love God with all that is within, as David tells us here in verse 1. None of us would like someone who showed up in our lives one day and demanded to be daily reminded of how great they are. But why do we accept that of God? C.S. Lewis, who had previously, before he was converted to Christianity, been an atheist, he had difficulty with this until he recognized that we are naturally praising and adoring anything and anyone that we truly enjoy. It just spills out of us. It just happens. He writes, I had not noticed that just as people spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them as they do it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmists, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all people do when they speak of what they care about. I think, C.S. Lewis continues, that we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. 
It is its appointed consummation. It's not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. Now, since we express praise and enjoyment of even inanimate objects, Lewis concludes that God is that object to admire which, or if you like, to appreciate which, is simply to be awake, to have entered the real world. Not to appreciate which is to have lost the greatest experience and in the end to have lost all. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. And in inviting us to love him, God is asking us to truly live. Now, this is the only topic out of the 12-week Worship by the Book series where we're talking about something both that God feels for us and we feel for God. We worship God, but he doesn't worship us. We thank God, but he doesn't thank us. We confess to God, but God doesn't confess to us. Those ways of relating to God, though extremely necessary, are by nature one way. But adoration is different. God adores us, and we adore God. Indeed, John tells us in the New Testament that we only love and adore God because he first loved us. Our adoration is simply a dim reflection and response to his adoration of us. Now, David is a wonderful person to learn adoration from. God described him as a man after God's heart. Now, this meant that wherever David ended up, whether it was on the mountaintop as a mighty warrior king or in the depths as a murderer and a sinner, he always gauged how he was doing by how his relationship with God was doing. To draw near to God was David's primary aim in life. So here in Psalm 103, we encounter David in this place of adoration. He opens and closes this psalm by preaching to himself, Bless the Lord, O my soul. He's looking inward and preaching this message of just love God, bless God. How do we cultivate this heart to bless God? Maybe you're just not there right now. That's okay. David walks us through how to get there or maybe how to stay there. And surprise, surprise, we do not get there by trying harder. We, we get there by reflecting on three things as David walks through. The first thing is what God has done for you. The second thing is what God is like. And the third is that he is the main character of this story. Let's join David as he boils over with adoration for God, starting in verse 1 of Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, 
who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like, it, like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone. And its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Let's pray. God, thank you for this psalm. Thank you for David's words here that just get across his heart for you and also your heart for us. Lord, may we more fully grasp your heart for us this morning so that our heart can just be enlarged with love for you and enjoyment of you. In Jesus' name. So first things first, remember what God has done for you. Verses 1 through 5. The first step we see is that David says, remember. Or rather, he writes, don't forget. Don't forget the benefits of knowing God. Don't forget everything he's done for you, David. When I'm going through a season of difficulty or feeling distant from God, it's easy to get wrapped up in self-focus. My gaze is inward. I'm not thinking of the big picture. I'm thinking of how I'm going to get through the next few hours or days. I'm in survival mode. I'm in a fog. I can only see what's right in front of me, let alone the rest of the world, let alone somebody else, let alone God. God understands this. So our first step in coming around to him is to pause and take stock of the benefits of God personally. Okay, don't think about the grand scheme of things yet. For now, you can continue to be the center of your attention. But just take a moment to remember all the ways God has benefited you personally. John Corson, he's a pastor in Oregon, writes, Whenever we find ourselves full of anxiety about the future, it's most likely because we don't remember how faithful God has been in the past. David lists six benefits that he has personally experienced. 
Notice that these blessings from God are both eternal blessings and here and now blessings. David's sins have been forgiven and God has kept him physically healthy. His life is redeemed from the pit or the grave and God has made him aware of God's goodness, love, and mercy in his life. The eternal blessings and the temporal blessings are intertwined for David. And of course, what jumps out at me right away is we all know that in this life, not all our diseases are healed. I'm a cancer nurse, after all. But we have confidence that this life is not all there is. God may not heal our diseases in this life, but he can. He does still heal. And ultimately, he will. That statement, heals all your diseases, is true. Because ultimately, he will. He will heal all of them. He will give us new bodies that will never decay. He redeems your life from the pit even after you end up in a pit. And it's in that confidence that we can walk here and now crowned with his steadfast love and mercy. And into that beautiful verse 5, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. There's a parallel verse in Isaiah that says, Even youths shall faint and be weary. Even young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. It's those who wait for the Lord that renew their strength. Recognize that you cannot run without help. Recognize that your only source of true strength is not your natural ability or your commitment to a cause. You are dependent on God for strength. We just need remember. If you're a believer in Jesus, remember how far you've come. Paul writes in Ephesians that you used to be dead. You were spiritually dead in sin when God found you. He writes, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. It's likely that remembering that benefit alone will be enough to prompt adoration of this God. But David continues, and he reflects not just on what God has done for him personally, but he zooms out on what God is like. Verses 6 through 14. I want to read these again because they're that good. Starting in verse 6. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, 
nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. So after David acknowledges the benefits of God personally, he moves on to reflect on the intrinsic character traits of this God. What is this God like? And we can fall into two pitfalls. We can think that we were good enough for God to save us. Or rather, yes, he saved us, but we can take it from here. You know, kind of like what Matt was sharing in the catechism. We can, we can take it this next 1%. Or we can think that, yes, he has saved us, but now he's just waiting for us to screw up again so he can point his finger at us in condemnation. Both of those pitfalls forgets the truth of who we are and who God is. Now, we get a quick refresher on who we are in verse 14. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. No, you did not earn God's favor. He gave it to you as a gift. But the other pitfall is also far too common. John Corson writes again that we've been conditioned to think that God is nervous and uptight. When in reality, he's just the opposite slow to anger, and full of inexhaustible mercy. Yes, we are dust, but that's okay. It's just who we are, and God knows that. He says, I love you, and then as if reading our minds, he says, yes, even that part of you, the part of you that no one else knows about. The other week, you know, we're, I don't know, 15 weeks into a pandemic, I just all of a sudden realized I don't have it all together. (laughs) And of course, that's obviously true all the time, but we can get into a groove sometimes where we think we're cruising along, we figured this whole, you know, relationship with God thing out, life thing out, but then a pandemic hits and it's like I'm back to square one with the status of my relationship with God, with my trust in God, with my need for God. And it's in that moment that he approaches me and us as a loving father would. Verse, four, verse 13, as a, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Now, I don't care what Ella does to me how badly she pokes my eye or breaks my things or whines or does all the number of things that really grates on me. When she says, I'm sorry, Dada, or sort of looks at me with that smile, it's like it never happened. I am always ready. I'm always pining away on the verge of showing her compassion. That's what I want to do. That's what I live to do. I feel it in my bones. 
Now, God feels the same way about us. He's not waiting, ready to pounce on us for screwing up again. He is waiting, ready to shower us with mercy and grace and favor. His favorite self-portrait is in verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and mercy. Excuse me, just steadfast love in that. The first time he said that was in Exodus. And he says it over and over and over again throughout the entire Old Testament. And we're talking about the Old Testament. The Old Testament God who people kind of throw under the bus. But he is repeating over and over that he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger. His slowness to anger is directly contrasted with his abounding in steadfast love. And David sort of elaborates and more clearly defines this self-portrait in verses 9 through 12. He says he's not always going to chide. He's not going to keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love to those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our sins from us. Now, not until we reach the New Testament is it revealed how much it cost God to display this sort of mercy and love. And yet he did. We see this heart, this motivation of God's in uh, Ephesians, where, where Paul writes, God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now listen to this. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God bestowed mercy and love in sending Jesus so that he could continue to show us the same mercy and love for all time. That's his motivation. That's the kind of God he is. Now, two other characteristics of God shine through in this section. The first is in verse 7. He, uh, David writes, He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. Now, you could sort of gloss over that. Um, but the cool thing about that verse is it shows us that God is a revealing God. That even though we are mere dust, God revealed himself to us. He could have just left us to fend for ourselves. We would never have found him because he is infinite and we are not. But he went ahead and wrote himself into the story. That in and of itself shows his character. Now, the last one I want to highlight starts the section off in verse 6. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. Talk about a hot-button verse for our city and our country and our world 
right now. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. Now, this verse is not a random one-off verse in the Old Testament or even in the Psalms about righteousness, justice, or the oppressed. Psalm 9 describes God as a stronghold for the oppressed. Psalm 72 describes God as one who defends the cause of the poor, gives deliverance to the children of the needy, and crushes the oppressor. Now these are only in the book of Psalms. If you widen the filter to all of the Old Testament, you start to get an idea of how much God cares about the poor and the vulnerable in society. Now once again, there are two pitfalls that are easy for Christians to slip into. The first is being indifferent to the plight of the poor or the cause of the poor and vulnerable. If God cares about justice for the oppressed, if he's the one, like in verse 6, verse, sorry, verse six who works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed, if he cares about caring for the needs of the poor and the marginalized, about defending their cause, should we not as believers in Jesus also prioritize those things? The second pitfall is failing to recognize that righteousness and justice go hand in hand in Scripture. If you look up that word justice, you'll see it right next to that word righteousness almost every time. Justice is defined by God and His character, not by any other ideology or foundation. As Christians, we can disagree on how justice happens in our community, but we cannot disagree that justice is rooted in God's character and that justice matters. Now, by way of review, David just reflected on a lot of characteristics of God. His mercy, his grace, his slowness to anger, his steadfast love, his revealing himself to us, his righteousness, and his justice. It's in reflecting on these qualities of who God actually is that we continue to be able to cultivate adoration for him. And after talking about God's beautiful character, David widens the scope to acknowledging that God is truly the main character of this cosmic story. Let's reread verses 15 through 22. David writes, As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it's gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Now, as David considers and reflects on how much God loves little old dusty David, 
he begins to compare God with man. Even the best of humanity is like a wildflower on Mount Rainier. It might be there next weekend when you go hiking, but check again in three weeks. It's gone. Whereas God, in the metaphor, is basically Mount Rainier. So why would we ever get distracted by man? God himself picks up on this theme in the book of Isaiah when he says through Isaiah, I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies of the son of man who is made like grass and have forgotten the Lord, your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth? God's like, all those people that you're worried about, all those situations that are in the hands of this person or that person, all those people will die. Unlike me, I will never die. Doesn't it make sense to consider my opinion, my priorities, my love for you? So once we are able to reflect on God's goodness to us personally, and his goodness intrinsically to him, we can then zoom out with David to acknowledge that he is the main character here. David says, wow, he's that good to me. Wow, he is that good, period. Of course it makes sense to bless him, to adore him, to share everything with him. He is worth handing over the keys of our lives to, since he already has the keys of everywhere and everything else. His kingdom rules over all. David then goes on to invite every other living thing, angels and people, and even inanimate objects, to join him in blessing God. Now, this very God is the same God who displayed his character by condescending to become one of these dusty, vaporous, insignificant wildflowers of a human being. Jesus took on a body that would die. The reason he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities, the reason he will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever, the reason he can remove our transgressions from us as far as the east is from the west, and can redeem your life from the pit is because Jesus, being the eternal Son of God, as Paul writes in Philippians, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus became one of those insignificant people like us but that is the ultimate act of God's adoration of us. 
Jesus is so worthy of our adoration. The same Jesus who has now all authority in heaven and on earth loves and adores, prays for, advocates for, thinks about, is excited to marry you. Therefore, you can enjoy him and adore him in return forever. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Let's pray. Thank you, God, that we don't serve a system. We don't serve a a list of rules. We don't serve our own personal perception or conception of what a God should look like. But we serve you. And this is what you're like. You are so worthy. Thank you that we get to adore you because you adore us. May that be our foundation from which we launch or crawl this week. Holy Spirit, please shed abroad that love of God in our hearts, as your word says. We bless you, God. Bless you, Jesus. Bless you, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.